This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. I'm Jeremy Tran, Executive Director and CEO of Gold House. Uh, we're their largest collective of Asian Pacific cultural change makers. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Thank you for coming on today, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ken. So can you talk a little bit about the mission of Gold House and how it was founded? Of course. So we were founded in 2018 um, in a room full of Asian Pacific leaders from across different industries. Uh, and we came together and realized that there was so much more we could do to support each other. And it makes sense that we're such a disparate community. You know, we represent dozens of different ethnicities and languages and have uh, different experiences of how our families or ourselves came to the United States. Um, but at the same time, while giving space to celebrate those differences, we knew there were a lot of moments and causes that we can uh, rally behind and support each other with. So with that, um, we started Gold House really to first and foremost, to bring those leaders together. And then secondly, to harness their energy, their resources, um, their passions towards elevating the Asian Pacific community by, by focusing on a few causes we thought could, could really do that. Um, so we started in entertainment and media representation, because I think Regardless of your background, we all understood what it meant to not be seen, not be heard accurately um, on the screen, on the big screen, the small screen, et cetera. So that's where we started, um, supported a film called Crazy Rich Asians, uh, which did very well. Um, it, it was number one in the box office, became the highest grossing rom-com in over a decade, and since then kind of elevated um, a lot of Asian Pacific stories um, and Gold House kind of grew along with that. Uh, we've now focused on more than just media representation, but also on investing back into the community through a slate of different accelerator incubator programs. We have uh, focused on entrepreneurs to emerging artists and creatives. Now, I'm imagining going back to 2017, uh, where maybe a group of you got together or probably saw each other at networking events. I mean, how did that genesis come about? Because I can't imagine just, you know, this powerhouse a group of guys or gals get together. There, there has to be something that kind of put you guys all in the same room together, right? Right. And it really was um, that moment of Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, we, in many ways, um, knew each other through just different networking, different career uh, paths that we took. Um, so my co-founder and the CEO, Bing Chen, 
uh, was a YouTube executive for many years before he left uh, and went into the startup world and eventually started Gold House. And so he had a lot of connections, especially in the Silicon Valley. Um, I was a lawyer for about seven years or so before I left to co-found Gold House. And, and, and I, I worked mostly in entertainment media litigation and worked in LA for, for quite some time. So I think um, through our different contacts over the years, as well as those who helped co-found uh, Gold House or other co-founders, and we were able to bring uh, leaders who may not have had the space to cross paths in their everyday jobs as much. Um, and Crazy Rich Asians gave us an anchoring moment um, and reason to come together and say, hey, you may be, you know, VP at a bank or the C-suite executive at a tech platform, but you know what the importance of this film is like and why we need to make sure that it does well in the box office because the ripple effects and the impact far exceed just a Hollywood. I'm not sure how much my listeners know the impact of Gold House in the United States, but this is what we're here to, to really expound on when i think about the founding of gold house and the serendipity of crazy rich asian i imagine and i try to think about which came first um did the group come first or did crazy rich asians because i know shang chi was right after that so it's like this serendipitous moment in the history of asian american media so how did that sort of chronologically go down? You guys all got together and then Crazy Rich Asians or you guys saw it on the horizon and you guys just went for it? Yeah, before Crazy Rich Asians, we were, uh, I would say more a, a collective that didn't have the formal foundation of what um, the Gold House Inc. is now. Uh, so when it started, it really was um, branded as Gold House, but it was more of an informal group of leaders across different industries. Uh, when we started to see the momentum swell and the demand and excitement from the community, uh, as well as leaders that, that wanted something like this to exist, uh, we then, uh, Bing and I then made the commitment and said, hey, let's, let's, make this a real thing. You know, let's give it the the legs and the foundation it needs so that it's sustainable and it's not just one film, one weekend in the box office. Um, and that's when I left my my uh, job at, at a big law firm and took the risk and said, hey, I'm really passionate about this. I love the people I'm meeting. Um, let's let's dedicate our our time to this and give it a shot. And since then, it's been about four years um, and we've grown tremendously and really, really feel blessed that the community continues to support um, us and to support um, all the different projects that come our way. Why do you think this has not started before 2017? <laughs> I'll say, um, Ken, I'll say there are a lot of great organizations that have been here um, and that we uh, are our work relies on the paths that they've created for decades. Um, I think the type of visibility that we've been fortunate enough to receive has really been a mix of different factors. One being just timing, really, and it's because of external factors and you know the the elevation of certain stories, certain companies, certain leaders. I've kind of come to uh, their 
their uh their sweet spot now you know i think that we're kind of there with them so a lot of it comes down to timing and then secondly i would say that we are um we're proud to be at the intersection in many ways of different communities and different industries um you know we don't serve just film and tv you know we also work a lot in uh the venture capital world in the tech world in the fashion world in the sports world and and being able to touch upon so many different industries and plant uh, seeds in so many different industries has given us that, uh, I would say, 360 holistic strategy and influence across uh, many different sectors that have al allowed us to um, allowed us to, to advance our brand, our community, um, our network in a way that I think may not have been done before. Now, there's a lot of communities that you really serve um, within the Asian American space. Now, the Latino market, the mainstream English speaking markets, those are a little bit, I wouldn't say easier to unify because I'm sure they have their factions and you know they're different groups, but uh, the Latino market speaks Spanish. Uh, English, obviously mainstream is English, but there's so many different languages within the Asian American space. And I'm sure there's all these cultural glitches that sort of don't mesh sometime perhaps how do you sort of mitigate around all these differences and because i i can imagine how difficult it is to kind of bring all of these different cultures together to make it work and be unified it's a challenge we think about every single day ken and we represent over 4 billion people in the world, right? It's, it's, there's no easy way to try to unite the vast majority of the world around certain causes. Um, and at the same time, we want to be able to celebrate those unique experiences and differences between the cultures, you know, as a, a Vietnamese American, it's different. Our, my family's story of coming to the United States is very different, for example, from maybe somebody who is a fourth generation Japanese American. Um, and we don't want to feel like we are a monolith, a monolith in any way or that all of our experiences are the same. So we want to make sure there's space and room to celebrate those unique experiences. At the same time, however, I think a lot of us viscerally can understand and feel certain things that we all um, have dealt with in our lives. Um, and and can find ways to work together um, to try to solve. Um, and that's that's something not just within the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, but also with our, our allies and other marginalized communities who have felt othered, who have felt uh, certain barriers being presented that we have to break through. And it's those commonalities that I think really, really encourage all of us to come together and say, hey, like I, I recognize you've had different experiences than me, but we also have things that we can focus on to try to dismantle and, and try to elevate our community at large. It, it's a high wire balancing act within the Asian American space, but I can also think about it being a place where it's difficult because we as people who are born in America have friends who are in the white mainstream spaces and black mainstream spaces. And how do we sort of go about and approach representation and getting our voices heard without, I feel like sometimes overpowering being 
over militant and the balancing of <laughs> sort of that uh it's a high wire balancing act to me to get work done because we do need everybody involved not just asian americans in our exactly. space we need to reach across you know a broad spectrum of 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 groups how do you find that because you know it's a fight is a fight and but it's not at, at the same time right so you know i i wonder about that kind of you know that um the juggling act that you have to do yeah um i'll speak about this i think in the way we approach talking about um certain projects and why it's important to support certain projects um, whenever I I speak to a partner, whether it's a studio or streamer or um, a a influential person who's interested in supporting a certain film or TV series, um, we go about it explaining that diversity, inclusion, all those buzzwords you hear is really not a box to be checked um, for for like good sakes, um, but actually can influence and impact your bottom line. And, and the way that a, a film that is um, diverse, quote unquote, does well is that it shows up authentically, right? And, and we can sniff out something that seems yeah. performative. Um, so explaining that to our partners and encouraging them to reframe and re and reimagine the way that they've been thinking um, diversity and inclusion in those words um, and, and integrating it authentically, realistically into their overall strategy is the approach to take because audiences today are demanding that type of content um, and audience today reflect um, such a diverse a group of people who want to see their stories being told in an authentic manner. So it's, it's not militant in any ways. We're not here to say you have to do X, Y, Z. Um, otherwise, you know, your film is going to flop, um, but rather saying, let's work together and let us explain to you why this at the end of the day is, is actually going to help your bottom line. And how receptive are the people listening? Um, I would say it's been, such a refreshing change in many ways over the last three, four, five years uh, since we've been in existence. I think at the very beginning, it was um, it was a newer concept for a lot of partners, right? And and to this day, there's still the multicultural department, the multicultural marketing department, right? It's it's important that they exist, but um, in many situations their budgets their influence may not be as uh as large as the overall like mainstream marketing or mainstream uh departments um so but we've seen that change over the years really really change in meaningful ways where everyone now um for the most part understands the importance of of uh thinking through how to show up authentically um and you know even if they haven't made leaps and bounds, they're opening their doors, welcoming us to the table to explain our position, our opinions, and really listening hard. And I, I feel like everyone is is trying their best to figure out what the correct path is. Um, and it has really improved a lot over the years. It's very satisfying to hear you say that. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's still a lot to do, but I think for the most part, everyone's um, hearts and minds are really changing and really in the right place now. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes we think of 
you know, this social media and we see all the fighting and we see all the polarization in America. But, you know, oftentimes when you really dig down to the to the layers of people who are making decisions, people are really putting their best foot forward and putting a lot of effort into helping underrepresented communities like ours to be heard and to be seen. Exactly. And and I think sometimes the 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 loudest uh voices that we hear in in social media for example aren't reflective of the majority of people um so we what what's been refreshing for us is that we get to work um really behind the scenes a lot right and we get to talk to a lot of these um powerful people with the ability to make uh, important decisions um and everyone we've talked to and everyone we work with and choose to work with does have a very open mind and does have their heart um, in the right place and are trying to navigate so many different factors to make things right. Um, and if, if at the end product or whatever it is you, you may see on screen or on like Instagram may look like it's not perfect, but a lot of times there's so much work behind the scenes being done to try to make it as perfect as possible. Um, and it's not as black and white as, as, uh, yeah. as social media may make it seem to be. Where did you spend your childhood and what was it like growing up for you? Oh gosh, I so I grew up in uh, Westminster in Little Saigon, in Southern California. Um, born and raised, uh, my family came. Uh, my family's from Saigon, and they came over to the United States in 1981, uh, one of the last waves of boat people. Um, and luckily, they ended up in Westminster, and I feel so blessed because we have family. As much as I love. Uh, many different Vietnamese American communities. I think it's just such a unique space that yeah. does not exist in anywhere else that I've seen. Um, and it's given my family uh, an opportunity to feel both American and Vietnamese American in many ways and continue to hold on to their heritage and culture. Um, for me, it was a way that uh, I made sure I maintained my language, um, understanding the history of our people, um, and really just feeling uh, feeling that type of love and community that I don't think I would have had had I grown up in a different space. I am very surprised that you grew up in Westminster. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I totally pegged you for a an East Coast guy. Yeah, I spent... <laughs> that's so funny because I, I grew up in Westminster and then I went to school in the Northeast um and moved to the boston area for seven years uh, i think in many ways that was the first time i really leaned into my vietnamese american identity um because growing up we were the majority in westminster you know my high school was probably 50 60 percent vietnamese american at least where, where did you go um, to high school i went to westminster high school wow. like i was as vietnamese american yeah. as it gets in many ways so there was no need for me to feel compelled to join you know, the Vietnamese American club or whatever it's called in high school. But when I went to, um, I went to Harvard, when I came to Harvard, um, usually there were probably a handful of Vietnamese American students per class. And my year had about 20. Um, and it was the very first time I felt suddenly different um, and being surrounded by people who uh, had very different life experiences. I remember and when my family came in and we moved into my freshman dorm, 
um, all of my freshman roommates uh, went to boarding school their yeah. whole lives and kind of had Harvard, you know, probably on their vision board or whatever, since they were, since they were toddlers. Um, and for me, it was just kind of a, a, a totally unexpected experience. So um, dealing with a lot of that probably changed the way I sound, changed the way I, I, I appear. Um, and for the first time, that's when I joined the Vietnamese Students Association oh. and started being more involved in understanding my identity. Even when I say that I thought that you were from the East Coast, that brings a weird connotation. I feel guilty for even saying that. <laughs> because what I'm what I'm implying is that the community in Orange County uh, is incapable, this sounds very harsh, but is incapable of producing somebody who has the world view to operate in Hollywood, right? Because typically I, I, you know, bump into a lot of uh, East Coast Vietnamese in Hollywood and it's the sort of like a more assertive, more aggressive, more broad in their understanding of culture. And typically in Orange County, you know, it's, it's, it's very homogenous, like you said, it's, you know, you grew up around a lot of Vietnamese. So um, the career trajectories are very different. So can you tell me a little bit about once you have spent a few years at Harvard and, you know, sort of putting, getting your footing in on the East Coast, what sort of like differences did you notice in growth in your own sort of thinking um, versus growing up in, in Westminster? Yeah, I always um, encourage whenever the opportunity to go speak to students um, at Westminster High School or just students in, in that general area. I always encourage them to consider college outside of Orange County. I think it's very um, turnkey in many ways for us to all go to UCI, UCLA. Yes. Um, and that's what I thought I would do, you know, growing up, because that's what you're told to do and what you see all of your friends and your older siblings do. Um, for me, I would say the best, the scariest and best decision I made was to leave that mm. Vietnamese American Orange County bubble um, because it really forced me to grow in ways yeah. um, I may not have been ready for at 18, but you know, you much like our parents um, who may not have been ready for the United States when they came over here on a boat um, and, and flew over here, they, you know, they, they showed a resilience um, that I think really defines a lot of uh, the core values of, of the Vietnamese American community. So for me, forcing myself to leave my comfort zone, you know, friends I've known since kindergarten that I grew up with um, and go to a place with people uh, who have such vastly different experiences than I did uh, growing up uh, was remarkably challenging at first, but um, it forced me to, to find and answer questions about myself uh, that I would not have had the opportunity to do or really have the courage to, to think about had I just stayed in Orange County yeah. my entire life. And then did you go to Harvard Law School right after undergrad at Harvard? I did. Um, so in college, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do uh, after college. And I tried many different career paths and different internships, uh, ended up not liking really any of them. So uh, uh, didn't study any pre-med uh, courses at all. So, you know, for me, it was just kind of going down that safe path. What can I do? Let's go to law school. Um, and I went straight to Harvard Law School, uh, moved essentially across the street to that campus um, and then uh, stayed there and decided 
I don't think I can live in the East Coast and I want to move back home. Um, but again, Orange County was a little too close to home. Uh, the different industries that Orange County focused on, I think, was uh, was not where I wanted to be, which is why I ended up in Los Angeles. Now, going from a big law firm to Gold House, uh, it's a, I, I'd imagine that's like a big a big risk and a big pay cut, right? What yeah. really <laughs> kept you going and what motivated you to really push through? Oh gosh, this is funny. This is something my parents uh, asked me a lot in the beginning. Um, how do you explain to your parents, you know, you, you finished law school or at a big law firm and um, six, seven years into the law firm, now you want to leave and, and start a nonprofit. I still think my parents don't fully understand what I do, but they know I'm happy. Um, Ken, to answer your question, for me, it was, I got to a place in my career where I was fortunate enough that I finished paying off my student loans. Um, I was faced with the decision of, do you want to stay you know, and work to become a partner at this law firm, or do you want to think about doing something else? Um, and I had the opportunity to work on some incredibly high profile trials during my career at the law firm. Um, but it didn't give me the sense of fulfillment that I was looking for long-term. So uh, I was not brave enough just to quit the law firm, but I asked for a sabbatical um, for six months to figure out whether I wanted to continue down this path towards becoming a partner or whether I want to do something else. And they graciously gave me that time. And it was during that time that I turned to Bing and said, I have six months to, to kind of try this out. Let's see how it goes. Um, and we absolutely just loved everyone we met and loved the energy and the work that we did. So I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to go back to the law firm. I just can't imagine going back to my, my desk job from there. It takes a lot of courage. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let me say the first few years, like we didn't take any salary or anything. You know, I was living off my savings for, for years. And so it was Bing and it took us some time to make sure that we got gold house to a place that we even felt comfortable even trying to um you know make sure that it's sustainable by paying ourselves and then eventually now we have a team of over 15 employees uh, and, and it's it's been remarkable to get to this place what is your day-to-day -day like uh as the executive director and coo of gold house um I'll, I'll show you an image of my calendar at some point it's it's <laughs> it's mostly meeting all day um events at night uh mixed in with some uh some fun creative moments such as watching early screeners reading scripts uh talking to different partners about how we can collaborate with them so that we meet their strategic goals while also elevating our community um but in the day it's 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 a good variety of things it's very fast paced um like any startup probably would be um, and very different from what i did as a lawyer gold house has their footprint in a lot of different things uh the gold list the gold house futures gold gala netflix gold i mean it goes on and on and on all these events and programming can you tell me how these things land and develop within um, at Gold House, be, and how do they become these full-fledged sort of mini enterprises? Yeah, that's um, 
there's no, I would say, no templatized way that a lot of these programs do come to life. Um, but I will say there's certain elements that are common throughout um, that have been uh, the reason behind the success of so many of our programs. Um, one is that we work with external partners um, in a very uh, strategic and authentic way to make them feel just as invested in the success of the program. Uh, and this could be something as as big as a Netflix, or it could be one or two individual journalists or one or two individual fashion designers that we're trying to support and elevate. Uh, you know, having their uh, their commitment to the program success really involves making the time to get to understand what they're trying to do, uh, how we can leverage our resources or our network to achieve those mutual goals, and then ensuring that we continue to involve them throughout the process and through the evolution of any of these programs. Um, from there, we, we, meet with all of our members on a regular basis. Uh, we, Bing and I just talked to uh, 300 of our members, uh, literally, personally, to get their feedback about, um, you know, how are things going since we started Gold House three or four years ago? Uh, you know, what do you see are the needs for the Asian American and Pacific Islander community? What could we do better? What are your dreams and goals personally? Um, and, you know, we've digested all that information to really inform how we can take um, our brand and our resources and network uh, into the future. So wait a minute. Let's break this down. You said 300. Is there like an intake form or, you know, like how does that process work? Is it you and Bing sitting through all of these Zoom calls with people or you guys send out Google forms? Yeah, when we met with our membership, uh, it took us about a year to get through all 300 of uh, sample size of our members. Um, and we personally met with all of them, whether it's calls or Zooms. Um, and, you know, it was time that we knew was important because when we started gold house in 2018 or so um 2017 2018 we we also met with uh, hundreds of leaders you know whether it's in intimate dinners or one-on-one -on -one to get their feedback as to what would be a meaningful organization for them to participate in um, and now uh, three, four years later, we wanted to make sure that we continue to involve them in defining what it is we do. You know, uh, I have a question that I wrote down to to ask about the secret sauce, and I think I'm hearing it right now. <laughs> Be because that sort of customization, that sort of tailoring to the needs of each individual to spend a whole year to go through this sample size group is the key. It's really the key to developing programs and events and, and all sorts of ideation comes from talking and engaging with people that are in your, your organization. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure everyone understands that um, we're here to support them, right? That's, that's the reason we exist. We're here to support their careers, their aspirations, and at the same time to support the community at large. So um, our programming 
in many ways should never be top down. Um, and it should involve the, the thoughts of everyone and not, not to say that everyone agrees and not everyone uh, thinks in the same way or thinks that we should prioritize the same things. Um, but it is informative to see all the different opinions out there. And then from there craft, um, our strategy and digest all that information um, that really is um, coming from so many people who are way smarter than I am, um, who are touching on industries that I, I never get the chance to on a day-to-day -day basis, um, but see the value in having an organization like ours exist and supporting them personally. You you sound like the, um, the idea, it, 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 you talking to you makes it seem like this idea of like an imperfect world of American media is working itself out in a very perfect way almost it's imperfect but it's <laughs> it's being perfected I think that's what I'm trying to say but if you were to think of a perfect world in in the American media landscape what would that look like oh gosh I honestly don't know if I can define what perfection would look like. I think, um, I think people will always be wanting uh, more, and that's not a bad thing, right? I think um, people will always be growing, changing their priorities, changing what it is that they they want to see. Um, to reflect their their uh, values at that time. Um, so for me, I would say perfect landscape in media would involve seeing more stories that are reflective of the overall population. Um, but I wouldn't be able to, to give you a, a concrete um, number or concrete uh, boundaries around what that actually means. Okay, so now when we think of Goldhouse and putting their putting your touch on the different projects and the different films and content that comes out, there has to be a very clear vetting process. <laughs> <laughs> Without sort of uh, you know, I don't I don't want to be too critical about a, a growing Asian American. Um, uh, content universe with without putting it down how do you vet because there's a lot of things that are not of quality and then there's a, <laughs> just a very small percentage of things that are really good stuff right so how do you go about saying yes and no to things that you are asked to be involved in yeah that's that's a great question it's something we we think about a lot um in deciding how we show up and how much we show up for certain content. Um, so I would say a couple of things here. One, um, there is a baseline in terms of quality that we will not, um, you know, we will not support uh, content that uh, perpetuates pernicious stereotypes or harmful stereotypes. You know, or really is you know taking us back setting us back decades um for the good part for the good part or the good majority of, of content we see now that that isn't the case you know and i think uh hollywood is very sensitive to making sure that they're not doing that um 
yes, there are nuances that can be changed and there are details that can be changed that may be more subtle in perpetuating certain stereotypes. But for the most part, the blatant uh, whitewashing of characters, et cetera, uh, we don't come across much, if at all, anymore. But that is you know, kind of the baseline. From there, I would say we evaluate a couple things. Um, one is really uh, the quality, the, the high quality, the, the parasites, the everything everywhere all at once of the world. When we see a film like that and we know it's so special, um, we will do all that we can to, to make sure that it does well uh, and encourage our community base to go out and see it, to support it, um, to buy tickets, to buy out entire theaters, uh, to fill the theaters and really make sure that these stories and these films that are of such high quality uh, really uh, penetrate the mainstream, whether it's in awards, whether it's box office numbers um, in a way that we may not have seen in the past. Um, the second factor I would highlight is impact, and that's a cultural impact number. Now, uh, without getting myself in trouble, I would say, you know, certain films aren't of that quality necessarily, where you think they're going to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. But that's not to say that there isn't space for really fun, you know, commercial popcorn uh, films yeah. um, and TV series that are equally important to changing the cultural zeitgeist. Um, so we see those films and we say, hey, you know, this is probably not going to win an Academy Award. The strategy may be different, but it can really go a long way in, in showing that our films are just as commercially viable, right? Are just as capable of being number one in the box office. Um, and, and it's not prestige as much as it is cultural impact. And there's a lot of films and TV series with support uh, in that vein as well. Now, going back a little bit to what you were saying about portrayal and projects or, or completed projects that are forwarded to you all and you see fault or you see different things that you you it makes you uncomfortable is it our job to call them out and let them know or do you gotta let it just slide out and just let them exist and just give them a soft no yeah so it's i would say um when you say our i'll, I'll, I'll kind of break that apart a little bit so I think there are certain organizations that exist um, to really be that, uh, that uh, I don't know what to call them, the, the watchdog in some ways and call out things that may not be done accurately or done harmfully. Um, and it's great that they exist in the ecosystem because I think there is space for that and there's space for people to be very critical and, and, and to be that stick in many ways, uh, slapping, you know, the, the studios and, and, yeah. and Hollywood in ways that they're not doing well. Um, on the other hand, it, there's importance to having organizations like gold house. And like, there's several others that we work very closely with as well. Um, where we are focused more on celebrating the wins, um, and focused more on working in partnership with the creators and the studios and the networks, um, so that those, those moments hopefully will be corrected before um, they go out to the public. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely not a, a watchdog organization in many ways that a traditional one would be viewed as. Um, we're more, um, what we like to say is that we, we hold the carrot. You know, we, we say, if you're going to do well, like everything everywhere all at once, we will bring, bring the backing of our entire community and network to reward you for doing well, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than, um, 
bringing the backing of our network to punish you for doing yeah. something poorly. But but in the sort of closed doors, uh, do you let them know uh, producers that come to you with things that are completed and they're like, hey, can you take a look at this? Do you let them know like, hey, this is what's wrong or this perhaps is not coinciding with the vision that we uh, see for the community? Do you let them know? Yeah, you know, if they bring us on, so a lot of uh, projects bring us on quite early, um, as early as uh, scripting, like even before scripts are written, casting, um, to work with them as consultants to think through a lot of these issues. Mm. Um, in those situations, those are the ideal situations, yeah. right? Where we're brought in very early and able to work hand in hand with the creative team uh, to create something really magical. Um, other times we are brought on uh, once the project is completed and they're asking us for our opinions and we have to work with the realities there, right? Um, I will let you know, like we, there are projects we've been brought on to consult that we didn't publicly um, support in the way that, that we've supported other films because, you know, we, we said there are a lot of issues here. Um, we'll help identify them for you and, and try to help you navigate through them. But, you know, given that you can't make all of these changes, like we can't ourselves encourage our community to go out and, and support this film the way we would have had you brought us in earlier to fix those things um, from the beginning. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, there we talked about the different things that Goldhouse does, but are there any like sort of main pillars? You know, uh, you said uh, accelerators, um, the gala. Do you have like a formal sort of uh, structure or organization um, or buckets that you can break down? Yeah, so we think of our pillars and all of our programs fitting under three. Uh, one being unity, and that's focused on our members, uh, you know, bringing our community together uh, and, and finding moments to celebrate uh, our wins and also uh, harnessing resources when we need to. For example, um, the Monterey uh, Park shootings, uh, you know, when that happened, we were actually all at Sundance um, and immediately called up GoFundMe and our friends there and said, hey, we need to start something now, corralled dozens of different Asian American groups to come together to really start pushing out that fundraiser and raised over a million dollars in a few days. Um, so that's unity. Second is representation. And that's all of the uh, efforts we do in terms of media and entertainment representation uh, from consulting to promotion work um, to now research that we've been working closely with research institutions and, and conducting ourselves. Uh, and the, finally, the third pillar we call success. And that's focused on all the investment efforts that we do from investing in entrepreneurs um, to next-gen musicians, contemporary artists, filmmakers, and so forth. And are there more pillars in development or are these three enough for the next decade to kind of run? <laughs> um, I think broadly speaking, these three have helped us focus our energy to understand when certain things may not necessarily be aligned with what we should be doing and that there are other organizations better served doing this. Um, I don't see us changing this necessarily anytime soon, but we are broadening the programming um, that we that we are, are focused on under each of them. So to give you some concrete examples, um, with representation, 
we've been doing more and more work with other marginalized and underrepresented groups, um, whether it's with the Black community, the Indigenous community, the Latino community, and so forth. Um, because we know, uh, like you said earlier, Ken, we can't uh, exist in a silo in many ways. It, you know, We wouldn't succeed if we're just here for APIs and only by APIs. Um, so we found opportunities to work with those other community groups and to elevate their films and their stories as well and are putting more concrete, uh, actionable programming around that moving forward. Now, this is not a trick question, but it, it's going to come out a little bit tricky and complicated. So I exist in a very myopic space because it's the Vietnamese podcast, right? So this is what I focus on is the Vietnamese. You as a Vietnamese man uh, are sw swimming in a bit much bigger uh, ocean of Asian Americans. And you just said you're much broader mainstream. But do you ever look at Vietnamese people in the uh, entertainment industry and go, you could learn a little bit more from that community or in your mind, does it ever come across? And, and like I said, it's not a, I'm not a, it's not a gotcha moment. I, I just think about your position. Like as I was working on your questions, I was like, I wonder if he ever thinks about like, you know, cause you're, you're at a, you're at a 30,000 foot, you know, you're looking at all of the communities and you're like, okay, those guys are doing it right. These guys are, right. and then you're thinking about the Vietnamese community broad strokes could probably improve in this way. I, I know it's a very uh, touchy question, but you know, again, I come from it very myopically and you know. And not at all. I, I appreciate that question. And I think um, I'll start broadly for the API community, then more specifically about the Vietnamese American community. Um, for us, when we started Gold House, we looked at the black communities and we looked at um, you know, the, the Jewish communities, the, the, the strong, uh, networks for women and saw what those communities did for films, um, for projects that they cared about and how they were really able to come together and support a film like a black Panther, for example. Um, and people from outside of entertainment were supporting films like a black Panther. Um, so we, we, envied that in many ways and said, how do we create something similar? Um, how do we learn from them and, and ways that they bring the communities together, their communities together to support that type of content? And, and that's kind of where we started with the broader Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Um, to speak specifically about the Vietnamese American community, I would say um, for a lot of us, uh, our families came over what, in the 70s and 80s um, 90s maybe as well. So we we're kind of our like our generation is coming to the age now where we are starting to lead companies and starting to lead projects in a way that maybe our parents' generation didn't have that opportunity because they came over here under different circumstances. So when I when I see other um, other Asian American uh, community groups uh, who've had a longer time, honestly, in the United States. Um, I, I look up to them and say, wow, you know, you're, you're, you've been here, you've kind of uh, gone through all the different challenges you go through culturally from, you know, from adjusting to being in the United States to, you know, not always wanting to be a doctor or a lawyer and trying different creative industries as well or careers as well. Um, and I see our time is really just coming. Uh, and I've been very, I've been very, um, 
excited about a lot of the different talent and content we have coming out. You know, we've had we had a great film at Sundance called The Accidental Getaway Driver. Um, we have The Sympathizer coming out on HBO, you know, soon. So there's a lot of great content and a lot of amazing leaders really starting to step up to represent our community specifically. It's a great answer. Now, if you weren't doing the work that you were doing now, and if it was like a you lived in a fantasy world, what do you think you'd be doing? <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I ask this question all the time um, of, of anyone I'm interviewing or anyone I talk to. Uh, I, at core, love to um, love to create. Uh, so that means writing. I, I used mm. to draw and paint a lot as well. Um, and it was that creative side of my brain that I didn't get to... Um, I didn't have the luxury of of or the or the courage really to flex yeah. as much growing up because you know I just took the the stable career paths like I I, I wouldn't be able to tell my parents I'm going to become an artist I think you know that they would be so confused and 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 for me it was like okay let's focus on school let's you know study science math and then for me even becoming a lawyer was was a was a controversial decision because they always wanted me to become a doctor um, so. I, I say this in all honesty, if I could do anything, I would love to write and illustrate children's books. Wow. Uh, that's wow. something I hope to do someday. Yeah. Um, and, and something I would love to do with um, with my sister as well. She's also very creative, but she's a dentist, you know, also on a very safe career path, um, but she's a pediatric dentist and she uh, her office that she has, she painted all of the paintings there. You know, she finds ways to flex her creativity, and it would be really meaningful for us to get to a place in our careers where we, where you know, we're we're comfortable and saying, "Hey, let's you know, let's I don't know, write a book, a children's book together, and draw it together as well." Oh, it's so adorable. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I have a four and a five year old, and I can I can totally um, empathize with uh, that sort of creative uh, endeavor. Yeah, yeah. So, have you been to Vietnam? I have. I went once in 2012, so it's been over 10 years ago. Gosh, it's changed. Um, it's. <laughs> I'm sure it's changed a lot. Yeah. Um, my parents still have not been back since they left, uh, and I think it's it's in their minds, in many ways, uh, they've lost the country that they know. Um, but my sister and I are trying to encourage them to go with us at some point in the next uh, three to five years. Yeah, that's such a contentious um, issue in many families, you know, yep. um, especially for me and my brother. My brother's been there for 20 years. He teaches and he has a, wow. he does animation um, for, for American studios here. And we, we, we bump into parents all the time that are really against going back to participate in any endeavor in Vietnam. And we find that to be heartbreaking. And, you know, we have parents and uncles and everybody who's, you know, suffered on, you know, on both sides. And, you know, I, the, the big reconciliation wor word is a bad word um, in, in yeah. Little Saigon, you know, so it's something that tip, we have to tiptoe around right now. And I, I hope that it changes. I do too. You know, I, it's funny because growing up in Westminster, you you see one viewpoint, you know, and you get it. That's it's 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 hard when your family went through a war and then they came here 
under those circumstances. Um, but when I went to, to college, it was the first time I got to meet people um, from Vietnam, uh, from quote unquote, the other side, you know, in many ways, um, yeah. students, classmates of mine who, who were foreign students, you know, international students from Vietnam. I took Vietnamese language um, from a professor who's from Vietnam and taught us Vietnamese history from his perspective as well. Um, so it really just encouraged me to keep an open mind that I didn't necessarily get to uh, to have growing up in Westminster. And that's what pushed me to, to travel to Vietnam after law school, just to see what it's like, to see the people there. And um, and and learn the the culture and how it's evolved since my parents have left. Yeah. Well, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? You know, it's 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 funny because working in this space now, which um, and, you know, constantly thinking about representation about um, about the Asian American Pacific Islander communities is is work. And in many ways, in the past, it was always something. Uh, as a side hobby, a side passion. So um, I think for me, when it was a side passion and hobby, it was always very uh, constantly exciting to be able to do something that that I didn't get to do in a day to day. Now, like when I think about it, it is so integral to what I do yeah. every single moment uh, from the moment I wake up. It's, it's not that it's less exciting. It's just more, um, more tactical, I would say more, uh, less, less uh, big picture, but how do I execute getting to that uh, that dream state of what I want to be at? Because now that's my job. You know, that's my job now to actually start putting uh, that in motion and to to get that achieved, rather than just thinking about it like what what I don't know what event can I go to after work? But actually, this is this is my work. And what do you think the Vietnamese culture has contributed to the world at large? Oh gosh, where do you begin with that? <laughs> um, I would say, I would say, I would give you like a fun answer, um, and then maybe maybe some some deeper answers if, if I can try to be compelling in some way. Fun answers is I think we have the best food, yeah, overall, and I think everyone I've met who's tried Vietnamese food agrees and that it's so diverse and it brings in so many different um, types of produce, types of protein flavors, just because of where we were situated in the world, I yeah. think, um, and influences from different cultures as well. So a fun answer, I think, yeah, it's just that that food is just so incredible and, and something that I'm I'm always so proud to share with people who who may not have had the opportunity to try something besides a banh mi or a pho. Yeah. Um, and then a, a deeper answer, I think, is that the world saw um, the war, you know, in the in the 70s. Um, and I'm excited for the sympathizer to come out to to make it even more mainstream to audiences today. And just the the um, the impact of what a war like that could have on a people. But at the end of the day the resilience and and the beauty of of not just us but of of so many people around the world who are able to push through something that traumatic um and come out of it thriving and come out of it doing so much incredible things um for our community and and beyond your work in the last short few years have been so impactful 
I look forward to the next decade of your work at Gold House and all the things that all the things that you've been doing and continue to do. Thank you so much today for spending this time with me. Is there anything else that you want to share with me um, on your journey, about your journey, uh, or with Gold House? I just wanted to thank you, Ken. You know, having this space and you you creating this space for our community has been so wonderful. Um, I think. Uh, when I say there are leaders out there doing things specifically for the Vietnamese American community, I, I include you in that. And I appreciate all the work that you've been doing to spotlight our stories. So thank you. And I appreciate your kind words. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.